I am thrilled to be here with uh, among many new friends, um, all of whom I believe support the same things that I have for that I have for my entire adult life been advocating for, and that is to empower families to make the right choices for their children's education. And um, we, I know we're going to talk about my book, but I've recently written a book that um, has given me the introduction to a lot of uh, audiences like you to be able to talk further about these ideas, some of the experiences that were gained while I was in Washington, but a lot of the, um, the history that has been behind the move toward education freedom and the moment that we're in today, which I believe is one of great momentum and one that we really need to capitalize on for the sake of the kids who really need it the most. So I'm excited for our conversation and ready to go. Now, I've, I've been reading your book, and a wonderful book it is too. I noticed there are many copies in the room. Um, it, um, it tells some wonderful stories. It, it talks about how you became the education secretary to begin with. There's this wonderful moment when, like millions of Americans, you woke up very pleasantly surprised to discover that Donald Trump was president. You then talk in your book this wonderful story about how you, you got this email from Jeb Bush, which you didn't look at for a few days, and um, you, you kind of ended up becoming education secretary. Talk, talk us through, how did you actually become education secretary? Well, actually, the morning after the election in 2016, I was headed early to Indiana for a series of meetings with legislators there around uh, education policy and advancing education freedom there. And so I had gone to bed before the election was decided on Tuesday night. And so when I wakened, I was very happily surprised to see that um, President Trump had been named president-elect. And um, it was actually that day while I was traveling to Indiana, I was on my computer and I got this one sentence email from Jeb Bush, who's been a longtime friend and fellow warrior in the education freedom movement. And the, the, the email said, would you ever consider being secretary of education? That was it. And I have to admit, when I read that sentence, that thought had never before crossed my mind. So it was kind of like a, a startling um, situation. And I was traveling with a colleague with whom I'd worked on education freedom stuff for a long time, showed it to him, and we both kind of chuckled about it. And then I forgot about it for the day. And uh, of course, wouldn't have responded until I'd had a chance to think about it a little bit more and share it with my husband and make sure he didn't you know, say, don't even think about it. Um, I actually came back and, and said, here's this email from Jeb, and here's what I think my response is going to be. And it was, I literally have never thought about it before, but if the opportunity ever arose, how could I not consider it? And um, my husband, Dick, said, that's exactly what I thought you would say, and that's great. So that set off a very short chain of events. I, this was Wednesday, the day after the election. And um, it was, uh, you know, less than a week and a half later that then-President-elect Trump told me, called me on the phone and said, you're going to make a great education secretary. <laughs> so that was, but that's all in the book, all the nuances in between there. Wonderful. It's a wonderful story. Thank you. Now, 
Also reading a book, what's really striking is just how much you've had to put up with. You've been absolutely vilified by the forces of no change, by people who are happy with mediocrity. You, you, you could have lived a, a, a quiet life, but you, you don't. You travel tirelessly around the country um, speaking on these issues. Where does this come from? Was there a moment when you suddenly thought, I want to dedicate my life to this? Well, my work in education really um, developed when my oldest son, who's just about 41, was going to start kindergarten. And Dick and I knew we were going to be able to send our children wherever we thought was best for them. So I was looking around West Michigan, where we live, for all the options to consider. And in the process of doing that, I found a wonderful little Christian school in the heart of our city that was serving the students from that, or the, the families from that area, most of whom were low income, most of whom were minority students. And while we didn't end up sending Rick to that school, I got involved there as a volunteer. Very quickly realizing, and I guess fully understanding in a new way, just how uh, unjust our financing and our policies were around education. Because for every family that had a child in that school, there were probably 10 or 20 other families in that neighborhood, or in that area, that would have loved to have their, their child in uh, the school like the Potter's House. And so my volunteerism there really led me into um, much more advocacy work. At the same time, I was very politically involved. I served in every role in the Republican Party in Michigan. Um, including, as I think uh, Cal mentioned in the, the introduction, the, um, as a state party chair for six years. And so I politics were, were something very familiar to me. And the more I got involved on the education policy side, the more I realized that it was going to take politics and political muscle to really make change. And so um, the book goes into all of the, you know, the background on that. But really, the, the, I think we can attribute a lot of the uh, successes in education freedom policies at the state level to when we introduced the political piece of it to the equation and said there's going to be accountability here. And if you don't support this, you might not win your next election. And, um, and that, that has been very effective in uh, the states in which we worked. We're, we're going to get into the book in a, bit of, in a moment with some questions about some of the ideas in it. But before we do that, am I allowed to ask, what was Donald Trump like? What was it like working for him? Well, he was, from my perspective, a great boss because education was not in his top, you know, three to five issues that he was focused on. So he gave me and my team a lot of latitude to do the work that we needed to do. We knew you know, the, his positions, we, we you know, had the marching orders, and, and frankly, that was one of the things that really um, I ultimately ended up supporting him around, was he was the first presidential candidate in my lifetime to advocate for school choice or education freedom. And so um, he, he really was a, a very um, you know, hands-off uh, boss from that perspective. And um, it, was, it was really, for the most part, a very great experience um, having, a, and, and I came from a, a place and a position where I haven't had too many bosses before. I've had boards to be re, you know, responsible to, but not, uh, not you know, a lot of bosses. And so 
he was he was a good one in that regard and uh, you know there were there were plenty of little vignettes and and stories that I could tell if there was a specific Dude, please, idea yes. yeah well <laughs> let's see uh, Nate any ideas which one that would be oh I, I I'm thinking of one so we we were one evening um, the cabinet members had been invited to the White House to watch a film in the little theater in the White House. And this was a film that had been uh, made by one of President Trump's friends. Um, that friend was there, and they were chatting afterwards, and Dick and I came down out of the theater to um, exit, and he, President Trump, this, this particular filmmaker was also a father whose son had been wrongfully accused in, no, yes, I think it was his son or a very close friend, had been part of the Duke lacrosse uh, team that had been wrongfully accused in a Title IX um, issue. And that triggered in President Trump's mind that whole situation, knowing that I was in the midst of going through the rulemaking around Title IX. And, um, and so he just asked, how's that going? And I said, we're coming along, we're, we're, we're gonna come out with a very strong rule, as you know, Mr. President. And then he stopped and he, he, he looked at Dick and he looked back at me and he looked back at Dick and he said, she's tough. She's tougher than you and me. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, your book, Hostages No More, could you explain the title? Um, talk a little bit about the thinking there. Certainly. Um, it's an ad admittedly provocative title, Hostages No More, but it's a direct reference to a quote that was made by Horace Mann. Horace Mann is commonly known as the father of our K-12 education system, brought to the United States from Prussia in approximately 1875. At that time, Horace Mann said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. Think about that. And then think about how many ways parents have realized their children have been held hostage to causes that may be very different than their own cause for their own child. Um, especially coming into focus during COVID, and we'll, I know, talk more about that. But it, it, it really is about freeing them from being hostage to a uh, government-run, um, single, you know, focus, a, a one-size-fits-all system. And another little uh, piece about Horace Mann, which is expounded upon in the book, but it's interesting to think about the fact that Horace Mann died 20 years before Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. Now when you think about that, and you think about how much our ability to communicate with one another has changed since that first phone call, and how little a child's experience of K-12 education has changed since then, it really does kind of, I think, put things into focus in a whole new way. So when you talk about the education system in America as being un-American, you're basically saying we've imported a late 19th century Prussian system. Well, we did in fact do that, and it was, uh, you know, it, it was probably, 
I know it was well-intentioned. It was probably the right thing at that time as we were entering the industrial age where you were, I mean, the plan was to put kids in one end of the system and have them all turn out the other end doing the exact, exact same things, knowing the same things, being essentially very, you know, very similar and similarly prepared to one another. Um, but that's not what the world needs today, and that's not what kids need. No, it's a very different world today, and we need to be fostering the kind of creativity and innate talent that every child has, and doing that, recognizing it's going to take different ways and different approaches to unleash and unlock all of that, not keep forcing them into a one-size-fits-all, top-down, top-driven system. In Washington, D.C., there's a great alphabet soup of bureaucracy, organizations and institutions that certainly don't get a mention in the Constitution, which have kind of been created and assumed powers that were never intended. Would you include the Department of Education in that? Should we even have a Department of Education at a federal level? I, I don't believe we should. And in fact, I've been often asked, would you ever consider going back as Secretary of Education? I said, I would, I would go under two um, circumstances. The first would be that we had an environment and we had a Congress ready to pass a bill that would add rocket fuel to education freedom programs in states. So we introduced, while in office, a bill to create a federal tax credit. A tax credit, not a program, not another department, simply a mechanism for individuals like any of us in this room to redirect a small portion of our federal tax bill directly into scholarship programs in our states or in someone else's state, wherever we chose, but to really come alongside what states are doing. So that would be the first, uh, the first uh, provision. The second would be with a mission to shut down the Department of Education. I believe that's what should happen. And um, you know, it was the Department of Education was not founded until 1979. It was a payoff that Jimmy Carter made to the teachers unions for having endorsed him for president in 1976, the first time the teachers unions endorsed a presidential candidate. So the payoff was a federal Department of Education. Any education matters had before been handled through HH, or then, yeah, it was HHS. No, it was HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare. But um, then the Department of Education was founded. In fact, uh, the head of a, the cabinet secretary for HEW at the time, Joseph Califano, said, I do not believe a Department of Education, a federal Department of Education is called for. Basically, this is a state's issue, and it should be left to the states. Um, so even his own party members were saying, this is, not, uh, this is not the right thing. But it was founded with the goal of closing the achievement gap between the top performers and the lowest performers. Over $1 trillion later, at the federal level alone, spent to specifically with that goal in mind, not only have our achievement gaps not narrowed one little bit, they've actually widened by almost every measure. So you have to ask yourself, why would you continue doing the same thing with more and more and more taxpayer resources and expect different results? I would argue if Congress wants to spend money on kids' education, they should send it directly to families through a vehicle like the tax credit, you know, a tax credit at the federal level. It should be sent directly to the families who need it most to do just that, to figure out where their child's 
you know, deficits are going to be best made up and best closed. It's very tempting for conservatives to think that everything that goes wrong in D.C. and at a federal level must be down to those um, Democrats. But actually, what's interesting reading your book is how often, despite having a conservative in office, you're having these tremendous fights with your own department, with this bureaucratic blob. Can you tell us about some of those struggles you had and where you got resistance even from supposedly your own side? Sure. Well, a as you all know, every federal agency has a permanent bureaucracy, and um, to the largest extent, and particularly in the Department of Education, those uh, that permanent bureaucracy is very much um, tilted toward the left, shall we say. And so everything that we tried to do, or everything that we did and accomplished internally at the Department of Education was most often met with uh, absolute resistance. There, everything was slow walked, everything was made vastly more difficult than it ever should have been. And for someone who came from the private sector, this was particularly frustrating. Because the simplest of things that should have taken, you know, five minutes or five hours to get done actually ended up taking five weeks or five months or maybe even longer. And, um, and so it, this, is, this bureaucracy just continues to go from administration to administration. And, uh, and, it's, and, and we're ultimately all ill-served by the way that it, it does not allow those who are in the executive branch, you know, the president and duly elected um, to, to be the executive to actually accomplish much of their agenda because there is so much inherent opposition and resistance that is a part of the permanent bureaucracy. Now, when, when COVID came along, there was this almost irrational hysteria and people demanding lockdowns, politicians demanding lockdowns. You're very critical of that decision. How much damage did that have on education? Was it, was it really one of the worst decisions ever made? Uh, the lockdowns f during COVID and the extended lockdowns, uh, you know, it was, it was important when um, we first knew that this was an, you know, a, a very big question mark and did not know what the longer term uh, realities were going to be. It was appropriate for two to four weeks. But beyond that, we, we started to know that kids were not the spreaders, kids were not the ones getting it, kids were not uh, at, at risk in ways that elder, you know, elderly individuals or ones with underlying conditions were. And instead of figuring out how we're going to best continue to make sure all kids are learning, um, the system, headed by the teachers' unions and all of the allies, all of the alphabet soup organizations, kept figuring out ways to extend the lockdowns, particularly in large urban areas. And, um, and, and you know, even today, we're looking at the city of Los Angeles that was closed down the longest. Now the teachers are on strike again in sympathy with the, the service workers there. And it's the, the children in that district that are suffering the most. I mean, the, the learning loss that has um, occurred because of this is immeasurable in many ways, and I don't think we're going to begin to know the the um, the full the full you know impact of that for many many years, particularly if policies aren't changed to actually change the dynamic and introduce education freedom into it. You sort of alluded to it when you. 
you sort of alluded to it when you talked about the role of some of the unions in um, with, with regard to COVID, but how big a problem in this fight are our unions? Well, they're the core. I mean, they're, they're the, uh, the, the top of the, the peak of the problem because they're the ones that, uh, you know, basically collude with all of the other uh, organizations to protect the status quo. I mean, think about it. They collect the, they collect the dues, uh, you know, basically from all of us taxpayers, they collect the dues via teachers and all of the support staff, and then they, they use those union dues to um, support candidates who will, uh, you know, will s pledge to do their bidding. And 99.7% of all the funds that they distribute out, the reported funds, go to Democrats who say, we're going to, you know, we're going to pledge to carry out your agenda. And so it becomes a vicious circle. And so it's politicians as well. It's elected officials who are part of this, uh, you know, protection of, a, a, uh, a failed system for too many kids and um, who continue to really hold them hostage as, uh, as you know, my book title says, hold them hostage if you don't have the resources or the means to do something different. Um, it is, it, it really is uh, um, a very um, frustrating dynamic and one that I think has begun, begun to become more uh, revealed again through through the realities of covid i believe they've overplayed their hand in many circumstances and um, you know the extended lockdowns and then now the uh, revelation around you know curriculums that are ab abhorrent to many families values or um, you know ones that in, in the distance learning were not even close to being robust enough to um, a family's expectation so it, it it really has revealed um, you know, behind the curtain, so to speak, and there's, there's, from in many cases, no there there. In in many districts, in many states across America, you have this problem of basically the education budget being spent in the interests of administrators and the, the payroll rather than the children in the classroom. But if that's the bad story, the really exciting story is we're starting to see real change. I would almost call it the, if not a revolution, then the beginnings of a revolution. We saw in West Virginia an incredibly enlightened policy of um, ESAs, and we can explain what those are. Um, Arizona followed suit. And then the neighbors across the river in Arkansas have brought in, I mean, I don't know about you, but Sarah Huckabee Saunders has done this most amazing um, program of reform with a fully-fledged universal ESA. Um, why is this happening, and why now? Well, I believe it's happening because, uh, for one thing, many have toiled, and many in this room have toiled for a long time to continue to advocate for education freedom in different, uh, from different respects and different perspectives. But the the realities of COVID brought into very clear sight um, the many failings of the system that many of us have seen for decades, because. Parents had a front row seat to see what was happening as their children were distant, you know, distance learning in their living room or their kitchen, and they, they, you know, they were able to eavesdrop on what was going on in the classroom, and in many cases they were appalled by what they saw, and so they've found their voices, and um, it's parents who thought, many parents who thought their children were in a good school because. After all, they'd moved to that suburb and paid more for that house to be living in a good school district 
and then that school failed them. And so this has really helped, this has really helped parents across the country and grandparents find their voices and demand, um, demand different. So the, the notion that instead of sending more and more money to a system, we should attach the dollars that are designated for that child to that child. And I, I have often used the metaphor of a backpack. You send a you know, kid off to school every day with the things they need for the day in the backpack. Metaphorically, we should attach those dollars that are already being spent, spent on that child through a system, attach those to that child's backpack and allow that family to make that choice of where that child goes to learn. You, you talk in the book about the parental awakening, and it's, it's clearly not just COVID that's, that's prompted this. Do you think it's also partly that parents are now more aware of some of the abhorrent things that are being taught? Oh, absolutely. And I think, but I do think that it was COVID that really helped reveal them because, um, you know, the, I mean, I start out in the book talking about the um, Virginia governor's race and how, uh, you know, Glenn Youngkin was able to really capitalize on a faux pas, what, what many of us thought was just a faux pas that would have been cleaned up by Terry McAuliffe, the former governor and then gubernatorial candidate who said, basically, I don't think parents should be involved in uh, what goes on in a kid's school and then he didn't back down on that i mean that was that was uh laying down the you know the the you know gauntlet and parents parents reacted to that rightfully so and then they started to discover more and more things that had been going on uh, i mean you know the uh, loudon county is kind of a microcosm of what's happening all over the country as you hear just abhorrent stories about you know young uh, early elementary school children being um, you know drawn into sexualized materials in ways that parents you know if they had known it before would have put their foot down and taken their kids out and done something different. So there's been a whole variety of things, critical race theory, um, you know, reverse racism, there's, you know, there's uh, wokeism, you name it, there's all kinds of ideological creep that, uh, you know, I would argue has been there for a long time and has been growing, but it has been revealed in ways that nobody had anticipated, and I, I would attribute much of that to the um, downstream implications of COVID. Looking across at what Arkansas has done, Arkansas is in a way very similar to Mississippi. Maybe I should be a bit careful about saying that, but, but in many ways they're similar. They both got a delta, they both got uh, very similar demographics, very similar size. And almost out of the blue, Sarah Huckabee Saunders has done what every state I, I, I think should do. What What's stopping us from doing that in Mississippi? What do you think we need to do? What, what are these supposedly insurmountable obstacles that she's overcome that we haven't tried to overcome here? Well, Sarah went in with an agenda and with uh, a plan to do exactly what she did. And uh, I had the privilege of working with her often um, when she was at the White House. And we had many conversations about this topic in particular. Um, at that time, not you know, speculating she would run for governor in Arkansas, but not, uh, not knowing for sure that she would. But I know she went there 
with the goal of right out of the gate, you know, bringing the reforms forward that she knew has to has to happen for kids in Arkansas, and it, it what it you know what it takes is uh, is that leadership and just the will to overcome um, the obstacles and the opposition that is uh, very entrenched, and we know that 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 is resident in every state in this in this country. So every state that's made progress toward education freedom, um, you know. They've had to. They've had to talk it through and just, um, you know, beat down the uh, predictable um, arguments against doing something in this direction. Um, you know, all of the all of the the arguments about hurting public schools and draining money away and all of that that has been totally debunked by the Florida example. Florida has had school choice, education freedom for 20 years, and they've continued to build on it term after term after term. And there have been dozens of studies that have gone after every one of these different arguments, and each one, it demonstrates that that is an absolute fallacy. These are just, you know, these are just, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the regular, um, sayings that the the opposition will throw out there to try to impede um, what we know needs to ultimately happen for the the best you know the best thing for kids and um, you know the, the 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 status quo is very protective of power and control and resources um, the reality is they continue to get a lot of resources and they will do better with the resources when they actually have other other um, examples to compare themselves to and that's been shown in more than one study in florida in the districts where the children where, where the highest percentage of children are going to schools other than their assigned public school the children overall the achievement levels of all the kids in that district have continued to improve. And I would argue it's because, first of all, the kids for whom their assigned school isn't working have found a better option that is working. And for the kids who stay in the, the assigned school, the school is actually making changes and adjustments that they refuse to make without those comparisons and without the threat of kids leaving their school. Competition works. Competition makes everyone better. It works in every other area of life. It needs to work and it needs to happen in our K-12 system if we hope to have a rising generation that's going to be prepared to lead in the future. The, the, uh, the, the arguments against school choice and education freedom always seem to me to boil down to trust. We, we don't trust parents. We don't trust other people to know what's better for their children. We, an elite who've been super educated, know what's best for families. How, how fundamentally do you respond to that, that presumption that they know better than American parents? Well, I think it's terribly offensive. And, uh, you know, I've met hundreds and hundreds of kids over the years, and, and in many cases, their parents who have, through small programs in states, whether they were privately funded or publicly funded, who've had the opportunity to make a choice other than their assigned school, and the trajectory for their lives has been fundamentally changed. To presume that a 
poor parent cannot make a good decision for his or her child is an absolute affront to that parent and it's I think broadly an affront to um, our humanity it is it, it, it is inconceivable to me that anyone could think that those who are highly educated elite and elite um, can make a better decision for a child they don't personally know um, they don't personally love than a parent who loves his or her child and I, th th this is just a, 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 a false argument that I think needs to be beaten immediately we're going to do two or three more oh, I, and I would just say there was there was a uh, state legislator in Georgia just this week I believe who made just that statement in a hearing and is getting a lot of feedback on that that you know parents who didn't you know graduate high school can't make a good decision for their child uh, I think this is uh, this is just abominable and um, again I think that uh, those that argument needs to just be defeated promptly um, we'll do two or three more topics and then I'll open it up to questions I know there are lots of people with 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 questions they wanted to ask I wanted to turn our attention briefly if I may to higher education we talk a lot about what's gone wrong in um, schooling but if you look at how certain publicly funded universities are now run, they're almost sort of factories for this divisive ideology, this divisive idea that Americans um, should almost um, see each other not as individuals, but as part of a collective group. It's, it's very, very damaging and divisive. What, what do you recommend in your book that we should do to change the universities, to tackle some of this? Well, it's not only publicly funded universities, it's also privately, uh, private universities and, and colleges that are um, really tilting in this direction. And I think, uh, again, I think higher education is in for a real revolution. I'm hopeful that some of the reforms we put into place while in office are going to encourage more um, supply in the higher education marketplace through, you know, the, the accreditors have been the gatekeepers in many regards to who can or who cannot participate as, um, as uh, you know, offerers of higher education. We, um, we changed that so that there's going to be a much more competitive marketplace in that, in, in regards to accreditation. I think states also have to do their part in that triad of the federal, you know, Department of Education accreditors and states. States are the authorizers for public institutions, as you know, and they need to step up and um, take responsibility for ensuring that their public institutions are uh, are, are not drifting off into. Um, unconstitutional areas where they're not allowing uh, you know open and, and free exchange of ideas on campus and um, and and just uh, embracing the far left uh, wokeism and all of the other you know um, acronyms that fall under that the um, but I but I think that the way that we're going to ultimately get ensure that higher education returns to its uh, original goals is by having other providers and I, I, I am encouraged by um, the private sector you know industries that are stepping up and saying we know that not all kids 
can or should go to college, yet they need something beyond college or beyond high school, um, a, a certificate or a short-term program of some sort, I, I think there's great opportunity for the private sector to step in in ways uh, and partner with, uh, you know, local um, high schools and or other institutions to provide alternate pathways. That was something that we really advocated very um, broadly for in uh, the last administration and one which we see this administration basically turning its back on in many ways. But there's, there's ample opportunities to strengthen the other pathways and encourage students to be very discerning about whether they whether a four-year college or university is the right thing for them to do after high school. A, a big part of the problem with universities seems to be accreditation and tenure. Tenure allows fairly mediocre, woke academics to sit there and not do much and teach sort of fairly mediocre courses and do it on our dollar. Florida's attempted to tackle this. Should we be trying to impose similar legislation on Old Miss and Mississippi State that Florida has now imposed on its universities? Well, I think it certainly merits uh, uh, some close attention to see if uh, some of those provisions are ones that should be emulated elsewhere. I think, uh, I think that states really reasserting their role in assuring what their higher ed institutions are actually offering is, uh, again, a, an important part of that triad. Um, again, the accreditors have gained far too much control and far too much influence in this. Um, there's more than one way to attack that. Our regulations have started to, but states have a role to play in that, and that would be a good, uh, a good area to examine, too. Now, um, Cal mentioned this in his opening remarks. We had Riley Gaines. She is the most, the, the most articulate 22-year-old I've ever met. She is not a professional communicator, but she's probably the most effective communicator I've listened to. She was extraordinarily compelling in her story. And it's a, Riley Gaines' story is, is an extraordinary story. She, she spent hours and years and months becoming the best swimmer in her class in, in America. And she was denied um, a gold medal because a cheat was allowed, who was a man, was allowed to say that he was a woman and compete against her. Even then, actually, she, 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 she wasn't actually beaten by him. They, 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 they tied, um, something that's very rare. And she's now going around talking about the need to um, defend women's sports and particularly fix Title IX. Now, I know you've been very involved in this. Would you like to talk a little bit about this? Certainly. Well, and I have a whole chapter in the book about what we did with Title IX and uh, regulation around that, because if you think back to the Obama administration, Obama-Biden administration, where they sent out a dear colleague letter to every educational institution and said, this is how you are to handle matters of sexual misconduct on campus, and basically did away with due process and essentially set up kangaroo courts across the country, affecting, negatively impacting hundreds and hundreds of young people. We set about to correct that, and in the process of doing that, did rulemaking, which has the force of law, and made the, the, the framework for that a very fair and balanced approach respecting both those who have been wronged and those who have been accused of wrong, giving them rights to make their case and, and to get to the truth. Long story short, the continuation of the Obama administration in the Biden administration sees the same 
individual who headed the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education back in that role again, and this time un undoing the work that we did and going multiple steps further if the rule is anything like the draft. Their rule will do away again with due process. It will set up a single investigator model for um, matters of misconduct. If they're brought to this investigator, the, in the individual can be the investigator, the judge, the jury, and then the individual who actually sees the, uh, you know, whatever uh, is, is the, the judgment play out. This is an absolutely indefensible approach, in my view. Secondly, they, will, they have uh, taken the definition of biological sex, which all of us recognize as male and female, and have added to it gender identity and basically anything else you decide you want to be at every, any given point in time. Which, in my view, and you know, lots of uh, legal minds, far smarter than me, have said it essentially makes the Title IX law a moot point. If you allow biological males to compete on, fe on female teams and against females, which Title IX was passed to actually allow women the equal access to that, to education and, and education activities, um, you can't, it, it can't be both. And so um, this, uh, you know, this is a very, very current example around that. And I would just add, I was a swimmer myself. I, can't, I swam competitively for nine years. There is no way I would have gone to 7.30 a.m. swim practice in a cold swimming pool all of those mornings if I knew I was gonna have to compete not only against really great female swimmers, but against biological males as well. I mean, this, is, this would just be the biggest wet blanket over women's sports um, that you could possibly imagine. The, the Uh, the, the Biden administration doesn't just seem to want to allow people to redefine themselves on a whim. It almost revels in this. Um, Kamala Harris the other day, I, I saw on social media, had written somebody a letter congratulating them for being a woman, despite the fact they're born as a man. They almost seem to, 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 to relish doing it. Where does this come from? I can't imagine Jimmy Carter's Democrat Party or, or even Bill Clinton's Democrat Party going along with this. Where does this come from? Well, I can't actually answer that myself other than that I, I, I'm just, I'm constantly like dumbfounded by the things that are happening in the most even unsuspecting places that reaffirm this attitude. And I, I mean, it has, uh, it, it is like, worse than whack-a-mole right now. It's you, you, everywhere you think you might have gotten, uh, you know, something exposed and sort of under control or back in the hands of, of, of sane thinking people, you have three other incidents pop up that are, um, that are equally as egregious. I mean, this is the, the far leftist of left have taken over the Democrat Party, and um, and you know, I, I think it's a real opportunity for those of us who are Republicans to attract um, individuals to support you know our candidates and our platforms uh, if we do it right. One of the great secrets of America's success is this principle that 
all Americans are created equal, that everyone, however imperfectly that may have sometimes been applied, that in principle everyone is equal. Critical race theory actually teaches Americans a very different idea. This is the idea that you are a victim and that there's a hierarchy of victimhood and that far from being equal, you need state intervention to compensate for alleged, alleged wrongdoing. Now, critical race theory is very, very divisive. We here in Mississippi passed a bill last year to try to combat this. But I'll be honest, it was quite difficult for us to do it because when you sit down and you figure out how we're going to pass the law to combat this, you can't as a conservative ban ideas. You can't ban books. You can't try and behave like a communist might. So the best we could come up with is to try to say that public money couldn't be used to compel students to believe some Americans were superior or inferior based upon immutable characteristics. And I like to think that Martin Luther King, when he talked about an America where his children will grow up and be judged on the content of their character rather than the color of the skin, I rather like to think our bill was consistent with that. But I have to say, it seems that that kind of legislation is not enough. What role is education reform going to have in combating these ideas? Well, I would agree, and, and first of all, congratulations for tackling that issue and, um, and for really attempting to uh, expose what has been going on and, uh, and to roll back all of those, those efforts to um, infiltrate all of our kids' uh, educations. But I th you're right, you can't ban ideas and you can't tell people how to think. What you can do is um, ensure that families who, because let's, let's be honest, I mean, this, this, uh, this view of victims and oppressors and the state has to uh, resolve every issue um, is in itself a faith, a religion. And, um, and so when we say that you know, schools are supposed to be um, you know, places of not, not having uh, a philosophy or a, uh, a religious bent, the reality is they, they do. I mean, secularism is the religion of, uh, of most of these folks who, who see the, the state and the government as uh, the answer and the, um, you know, the policeman for all of the ideology that they want to try to impose on everyone else. So the reality is that the only way to ultimately, I believe the only way to ultimately ensure that, um, that you know, all families' uh, perspectives are, are honored and respected and that um, you know, their ability to worship and live as they, they choose and please is to allow for them to make those choices through education freedom. And, um, and, uh, and let me just say a word about education freedom versus school choice. I know that the, the term school choice has been used for a long, long time. I actually uh, adopted the phrase education freedom several years ago because I think it helps us think more broadly about what education can and should look like. When you say school choice, you immediately think of a building. You immediately think of sort of the system that we've been operating under. And I don't think that that's how it has to look in the longer term. Yes, there will still be schools and school buildings, but you'll also have different iterations and different um, uh, experiences for young people. I think about a, a little school in the um, western part of Michigan where I live, and those of you who've been to Michigan know that it's getting a little nicer this time of year, but you know, December, January, February, 
very cold, lots of snow. Um, this little school, elementary school, is an outdoor school. The kids go to school outdoors every day, all day, year round. They don't have a school building. They have a couple of little huts they go in to warm up and you know, check in with their um, advisor. But this is a totally different approach to a K-12 experience. And I use that just as an example to say, we have to think more broadly about what learning and education can and should look like. And education freedom policies are the way that we're going to combat bad ideas or make sure that there's a free exchange of ideas rather than being subject to one ideology and philosophy. Wonderful. Well, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. We're going to have a, a we've got about 10 minutes for, for questions. So um, I'm going to um, um, pick on one or two people who I've prepped. Um, but if anyone would also like to put their hand up, um, I'll come to you as well. Now, Artie, I know you had a question. Did you want to? Well, I think, again, I think the founding of our K-12 education system was very well-intentioned, but I think that the, those who have been a part of protecting that system and growing the power of that system have been very intent and very intentional on doing just that. And it's kind of like the, you know, the frog in the pot of water. The water's just gotten hotter and hotter and hotter, and those, those of us that have been in the water um, maybe didn't realize it was time to jump out of that water. And I think we also get this romanticized notion of what public education is. It does not have to mean a government-run school. Public edu I would contend the better definition for public education is any educational experience that prepares every single child in our country to be effective contributors as adults and um, and and you know we get all we've gotten all caught up on what kind of school it's charter school home school private school faith-based school virtual school magnet school you you name it we've gotten ca you know caught up on those adjectives and lost sight of what education k-12 education really is and it needs to be the preparation of every single of unlocking every single child's potential which is not done exclusively through a top-down monopolistic government-run system think about public education being any kind of education that prepares the public any hands up for any questions you wanted to ask um warren
Well, I think the simplest elevator pitch is basically empower parents to choose the right education for their children. No matter their income, no matter their you know, home location, no matter their state, of course it has to be done state by state because these are state laws, but empower parents to make those choices, not, uh, don't cede that, that responsibility to um, a, a top-down government approach. Um, I, there's a hand up over there, the lady there. Sure. Well, it, it is true that school board elections, school boards have been very much a part of the whole ecosystem of the protection of the status quo. Because I don't know how it is exactly in Mississippi, but in my state of Michigan, school board elections are always held at a very innocuous time that nobody knows about. Nobody knows who the candidates are because they're all hand-picked by the insiders. and. Uh, they're automatically elected. Now, I think another great um, uh, result of this parental awakening is the involvement in school board races and the changing of, of many school boards. Uh, this, is a, this is good and important, but it's not going to ultimately solve the problem of the monopolistic one-size-fits-all system. It's still going, the, the, the school boards are still going to be um, uh, you know, part of the same uh, system that we've known for 175 years. It will be a good. It will be a good. Uh, you know, a good change. But the only way to fundamentally change the overall dynamic is by really uh, placing the parents in control of those resources instead of putting those resources directly into the system. I think we've got time for two more questions, and the chairman's prerogative. I see Cal wants to take one of them. Well, I think start with uh, the parent organizations that have organically been forming um, be, as a result of the experiences parents navigated through COVID. There's a lot of them, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen in the room who are part of parents organizations. Just raise your hand and let them let them know who um, is uh, involved in some of these grassroots organizations. Come alongside, support their efforts to. Uh, really be voices at the grassroots level. And then importantly, uh, talk to your legislators. And um, 
keep talking to your legislators and invite them if they're, they're if they're skeptical invite them to visit uh, you know schools that are working that are not part of the government run system um, invite them to um, you know to, to have conversation about what their what their reluctance is and give them the arguments against them uh, again my I I, I don't want to pitch my book too much but I will um, the uh, it, it really it really is a playbook for both parents and um, and policymakers to talk about and think about these issues and to dispel the opposition um, if you're not if you're not really fundamentally part of that system, um, you you are you got to be with the parents. Seventy-five to eighty percent of parents, no matter what you know how you cut it, are in favor of education freedom policies. We've never had that kind of support around that in this country before. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, you are what socioeconomic level. Seventy-five to eighty percent, and so this is the time to really advance the policies that are ultimately going to make all schools better. Because at at the at the core, this isn't about like hurting public schools. It's about helping kids, and it will ultimately help public schools get better in the process. Thanks. For that. Now, there's a gentleman next to you, um, Greg. I Well, it, it, thanks for that question. It, it is. I mean, this is really, um, I would say, a nationwide conversation with parents uh, rising up to say, we don't like what's been going on and we want change. I mean, it's happening in states like California and New York, um, and it should happen even more in New York. After this week, the New York, New York Board of Education decided to dumb down their expectations for students even further. They have decided, taking the, uh, the scores that students achieved in 2022 after all of the COVID learning loss, they're now uh, lowering all of the expectation, or the levels for proficiency to the 2022 levels. So what you're saying to kids is, we know you're behind, but that's okay. We don't expect that you're going to be able to catch up or learn what you need to learn in the 12 year, 13 years you're in K-12 education. We're gonna just keep lowering the bar, lowering expectations, and pretend that everything's gonna be okay. I mean, this, so parents all over the place have finally realized, you know, the ploy that this, that the status quo has been um, feeding us for a lot of years, and they're, they're, they're rising up all over the place. Uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Ohio and Indiana have both had major programs for a lot of years. They're both poised to dramatically expand their programs as well in this, uh, in this um, legislative session. Mrs. DeVos, thank you. Thank you for coming to Jackson. Thank you for taking the time to so eloquently explain your ideas. Thank you for writing such a brilliant book. 
Um, but thank you most of all for your service to America. Um, I think what you are doing is going to transform America for the better. And it's uh, because of your passion and commitment that I think we're going to see change. So thank you for all that you've done and are doing. Well, thank you, Douglas. Thank you, all of you who are supporting this organization. You are doing important work. And um, I look forward to what uh, Mississippi is going to do in the coming months to really support families and kids in our future. Thank you. Thank you.